So we're wrapping things up. And so in the past few weeks, I think Dave filled in for me. We've talked about Jesus and he was how he was both truly or fully God and truly man. And so I thought this morning, we've been talking about how he's man, right? How those two work together. I'm going to go slightly out of order, and you can cheat at the back, but I encourage you not to cheat in the feet if you want to challenge yourself. We're going to do a little heretical trivia, okay? <laughs> heretical trivia. So, at the appendix, if you need to look back and cheat, there are some heresies that deny something about Jesus, okay? Some heresies. So, this first one, I don't know if I can pronounce them all correctly, is docetism? What do you think, guys? Is that close? I don't know. Based on the belief that matter was immoral and the immaterial part of man inherently good, these heretics reason that Jesus, an intrinsically good being, would not be encased in wicked flesh. So which part of Jesus is that heresy denying? Yeah, yeah it's denying that he was a man. right? So then we've got Eutychianism. 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 Say it again. Eutychianism. Eutychianism. It's a made-up word anyways. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying. So, these heretics blended the two natures of Christ so that he was neither completely human nor completely divine. Rather, he was an amalgam of the two. So, what do you think? It's denying what? Yeah, it's denying both. So we're kind of, I thought it would be good to kind of go through these things so that we kind of think about, before we talk about what he is, maybe like, what are, what are some wrong beliefs? That we want to say that because he was good, he can't be man because flesh is evil or wicked like the, the docetism. All right, so then you've got, as well, that other, that other okay, Arianism. Christ was a created being, exalted himself the creator of the universe. Christ, in relation to the Father, was of similar essence, not of the same essence. So what are they denying? His eternal eternity mm-hmm. has always existed. Yeah, so part of him being truly and uh, fully God, right? They're saying he's a created being. He shares of the nature, shares of the essence, but not exactly the same as the Father. And then you have a couple other varieties. Uh, Socianism. Christ was the best of men, a created being, exalted to share in the divine nature, but um, he, is, he is not truly God himself. And then you even have kind of a step down, Unitarianism. Christ was a great good man who was in close communion with God. So pretty much canceling out right, almost all of his deity, if not all of it. Okay. Any thoughts about those different? Do you see any of that in conversation that you have with people today? Do you see them tend to more deny Christ's divinity, deny his humanity? Deny divinity because like history shows that um, Jesus Christ wasn't a person that was alive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people can see that like even in history classes, but people it's the question whether or not people believe as in, as he is a god or not. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. 
Do you find that people, like you mentioned, that history shows that he was a man? Have you ever run into people who would completely reject even that? that or do you tend to people, I mean, I've heard people say, I don't even know if there was a really a Jesus. Like, so it's kind of like, as they talk more and more, it kind of reveals a little bit more about whether or not they're open to what history does reveal. Yeah, I mean, maybe 100 years ago, historians would say that the Gospels were written two or 300 years after the fact. But mm -hmm. to say that Jesus didn't actually exist is not a, even in secular historical mm -hmm. circles, is just not a credible position yeah. anymore. Yeah. And it's one of the, it's like many of the things that as we study further, further, as we get further uh, archaeology, historical, there's so much research that instead of leading away from the Bible, it continues to come back and confirm the historicity. Yeah. There's all kinds of studies and things uh, that, again, through each continual bit of research. And so there has to be a way to, like you said, for most people, most academics, most people who have looked at and studied history, they're unable to reject Christ as a human being. Yeah. And so, well, I think that really reveals more people's approach to deciding what's true or not. Like, yeah. I mean, there, there are people who would say that, but I think it's less because there's no historical evidence and more because, mm -hmm. a, as a whole, that, that there are large segments of our society that are unwilling to, that they're okay landing on a position without research, <laughs> without researching it. So yeah. I, I think, I, yeah. yes, yes. How they go about truth. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that most people I, I've engaged in the past 20 years would more deny the, the deity of Jesus in mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. But I actually suspect it's going to shift in the coming years. Because increasingly, <coughs> society views the body as being uh, bad or uncertain, which is why you can change it. It's not your true self. Yep. And so I can, I can imagine over the next 5, 10, 15 plus years that people will become increasingly spiritual in a sense. Mm -hmm. They won't have a problem with the idea of Jesus being divine in some way. But they might have a problem with his body being truly human because the divine being encased in, in, in a, a fallen human body would be a harder thing for them to, to embrace. So I could be wrong, but I suspect we'll move more that direction in a lot of circles. Yeah, and it seems that we definitely see, we've talked about it before in our, in our ethics class, that people are wanting to define reality more in what's internal. Mm -hmm. And so there's a rejection of, yeah. and it creates a difficult part because many times we, we reject the external, but then we want to change the external to try and match. So there's this tension where in some ways we want the, the internal reality of what we believe is true to match the external reality. But which one is, if one is the key decider, Yeah. right? So is it, is it external reality that should shape what we think and view, or should it be our thoughts that, that shape that? I think the other place that people land is they don't care. They don't want to think about it. Just like, just don't bother me with it. So, and I think that then they don't have to land anywhere. They just, you know, they just say that they're just, they don't want to think about it, they don't want to go there. Yeah. And that's the, that's the part when we, when we share the gospel, right, we're trying to bring to the surface that part of that choice is that reminding them of the truth that there is a God and that who is Jesus and trying to deal with who is he as a person and come to a conclusion that the scriptures support. Yeah. I think on the other side, too, um, in extreme Pentecostal circles, mm -hmm. there's a lot of confusion about what does it mean for Jesus to be God. And so you have a movement called Oneness Pentecostals, mm -hmm. 
who believe that Jesus and the Father are basically the same. Like the Father became the Son who became mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so they don't necessarily allow for any Trinitarian nuance or you just have some who are just, they'll say that there's three Trinities within the Trinity or something like that. Yeah. So just some like really far out, like they have no problem with the divinity of Jesus, but mm -hmm. um, what that means is just very confused and strange. Yeah. So there's, it kind of creates a need so that we, like when we wrap things up, we want to talk about how can he be, right, man and God at the same time. So the scripture does affirm quite a few things, but there's many times at which it is, it's very much a stretch to understand how is it that he is this and this simultaneously. And uh, so if you're kind of with us, we are in the note, notes, I think we're around page eight, we're at, talking about the Trinity. So we have, we've gone through these repeated declarations by Jesus and others, kind of in the previous lesson, previous part of the lesson, that clearly state a belief that and a, a view that Jesus was and is God. And so the idea here is that although we don't see the word Trinity in the New Testament or in the Bible, we see it. Um, displayed through the way in which we talk about the Father and talk about the Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's read a couple passages. Uh, let's look at Matthew 28, 19 and 2 Corinthians 13, at the end of 2 Corinthians. These are a couple of places where you can kind of see the way in which we might find or see the Trinity. Jason, you got Matthew 28. Yep, 19. Uh-huh. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So baptize, we see that they are going to be made disciples of who and baptized in the name of we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, all three together. There doesn't seem to be any separation any, in the sense that only one, but all three are mentioned. And then Second Corinthians. Well, the big thing about that, in the name, name singular. Not in the names. Not right? the names, but in the names. In the singular. name of. Which is, help, like, why is there, why is that one name? Good catch, good catch. Second um, Corinthians 13, 14. Gotcha. Andrew, you got it? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we have different, right? The grace of Jesus, grace of the Lord Jesus, the what? <coughs> the love of God and the fellowship. fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so it's almost like we can kind of get a hint at like there's each one that has a particular role in a sense. Got grace, you have love, you have fellowship. And so in Hebrews 2, we see that this is a, the verse that's in back here. We're talking about how Christ was made to be like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so 
Hebrews talks about, you know, Jesus as that great high priest and just reminding, like, what, why is that so important? Why is, why is him as a, being both God and man, why is that so important for him to be a high priest? Yeah, Chris. He's a mediator. Okay, and mediator, what does a mediator do? And they communicate. They're like, they're like the diplomat. Between? Two powers. Yeah. Yeah, and so what's unique about, Hebrews talks in a lot of ways about why Jesus is the perfect or great high priest. And so how is he different? What are some ways in which he's different than the previous high priests in the temple? Never seen. Yeah, and Hebrews goes a lot into like why that's so important. He's both the high priest and the, the perfect sacrifice. Right? He's eternal. Mm-hmm. So he can stand forever ministering before the throne. Can sympathize with our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yeah, and I think getting into that temptation, right? What, when it says sympathize with our weaknesses, what does that, what does that mean? How does Christ being man, how does explain? How does that explain him being able to sympathize with our weaknesses? Even though he not, he did not sin. <coughs> He was tempted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and we're going to talk about like... We're tempted we're and tempted. we sin, mm-hmm. but he was tempted and did not mm-hmm. sin. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. Kind of building off of that, because when you're tempted and then you sin, you don't experience the full force of it. When you resist the temptation and you persevere through it, that's the full force of mm-hmm. the temptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any other weaknesses besides like our temptations to sin that you would have experienced? Just yeah. being human, our human bodies, yeah. experiencing hunger and fatigue and the emotions. And yeah. And I mean, it's not, we talked about one Sunday, I think that it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be hungry. It's not a sin to be tired. Mm-hmm. But he experienced and is familiar with all of those weaknesses our limitations um, in the sense that he was, was fully man, truly man. Experience the, the full force of living in a fallen world, just like we do. So everything about it, all the damaging, negative, difficult parts, mm-hmm. even to the point of he actually suffered and died. Mm-hmm. So he's experienced what it means to be human in a fallen world in the fullest degree. Yeah. He bled, he sweat, and he was in agony. <coughs> The hunger, yeah. Experience the relational effects of sin in in that he was betrayed. Betrayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was curious if you were going to say, like, you know, he experienced that um, that forsakenness on the cross, and that, but then also with Judas. Seeing Peter deny him, right? This brokenness between all of those. Which is sometimes, um, sometimes those relational wounds are m- more difficult to deal with as in terms of the curse than sickness or, I mean, it's depends. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he experienced all of that. I mean, imagine the relationships with his. Family, we imagine seeing, and we see him experience the loss of people. I mean, he did resurrect Lazarus, but right, he 
grew up, I'm sure, no doubt, as a child, seeing people that he knew die and pass away. Well, his dad's not in the picture. So, I mean, silence, but pretty good chance his dad died yeah. when he was a kid yeah. or a young man. So that's, you have the loss, and you also have um, that he likely was kind of taking on that role within the house, you know, leading the family, possibly um, taking care of his mother, and possibly dealing with conflict with brothers and sisters. We talk about how there were times when they were not, you know, really believing in him. So there's a lot of humanity there that we see in kind of in his incarnation. And the idea, um, when we talk about incarnation, right, and I think think about Latin or Spanish carne, right, it's like in the flesh, right? God is put on flesh. And let's read John 1.14 there. Andy, you got it? John 1.14. John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah, I mean, John 1 is, is really helpful because we see that real incarnation kind of worked itself out. We see the Word in the beginning. We go back to one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we see him. All things were made through him. Without him, wasn't anything made that was has been made. But then later on, down in verse 14, we see the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when we talk about... Oh, where's my... There we go. Uh, let's read a couple more passages about that incarnation. So, 1 Timothy 3.16. Nathan, you're going to get that one. Uh, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Okay, so there's several things here talking about Jesus, right? He who was, right? So what are, some, what are some of the things that we see in terms of describing Jesus? This is the mystery of godliness. This is their common confession. This is the mystery that he was first what? Manifested in the flesh. Yeah, manifested or revealed in the flesh. So we have him being in the form of a man. Then what do we have? In the spirit. In the spirit, vindicated in the spirit, seen by... Angels proclaimed, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So we see him on earth, but also in heaven, right? In terms of the sense of taken up in glory, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. So we see him kind of in both realms where he existed in heaven. He didn't just begin as a man, but he was existent before. And so almost I think when we think about when I think about Jesus in the incarnation, right? He's existed, you know, forever in the past, right? But the incarnation, right? He comes down in human flesh. And what do you guys think? Did he have a body here? Was he a man here? No. Yeah. 
So there was a change here, right? He became in the flesh. And then he ascended into heaven. Does he have a body here? Yes. Yeah, like a glorified body, right? So we can see kind of how unique that incarnation is, is that you have this eternally existent Son of God, and then he becomes in the flesh, takes on the form of a man, and then he reigns and uh, rules in that form for eternity. Okay. Uh, one example is that, I like this, this quote, um, there was, it says there on, in the middle of page 9, it's if, uh, the, that uh, if the divine nature had been converted into human or human into divine, there would be a change, but no. It still had a divine nature and a human nature. A cloud over the sun makes no change in the body of the sun. So the divine nature can be covered with the human, but it makes no change in the divine nature. So what, can you guys think, um, what's an example of a time where maybe we saw that he had this kind of this cloud covering over the sun, then we kind of get a glimpse behind it. Jesus in his glorified form, where do we see him? Transfiguration. Yeah, transfiguration. So we can see that there was, even, even though he was divine at the time, his glory was somewhat uh, covered or obscured by his humanity at times. Right? So, um, that brings us to, like, one term, hypostatic union. Hypostasis, I think, means human. Am I right on this? I think it comes from person. Could be wrong about this. It's a, I think it's the word for person. So it's a union of person, the person uh, that, that is human and the person that is divine. So here we've got the formulation from 451. We're still going with the 451. I haven't come up with anything better here. Um, but it was kind of to refute a lot of those heresies that we were talking about before, how he was not truly God, not truly man, that he was blended together to make something different, or that he was too distinct and not really the union of one, uh, one being. So if we kind of go through some of this, and we have underlined there, but con- where are we at? Um, he was truly God and truly man, consubstantial with the Father as to the Godhead, and consubstantial also with us as to man, his mandate, like unto us in all things, yet without sin, as to his Godhead begotten of the Father before all worlds, but as to his manhood in these days born for us men and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, known in two natures without confusion, without conversion, without severance, and without division. The distinction of the natures being in no wise abolished by their union, but the peculiarity of each nature being maintained, and both concurring in one person and subsistence. We confess a son... Not a son divided and centered into two persons, but one and the same son and only begotten God Logos and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a 
Got it. Got it? Thank you. So let's just pause. What are some things about that that make you pause and think, how does that work? You know, how does that happen? Substantial. Keep going. Like, what is? What do you mean? What a part of it is like? Well, to be as two at the same time. Yeah. That's not something we can wrap our minds around. Yeah, I think I think what they're saying. Right, we have two ideas, two <coughs> natures, one person. Right. That's kind of that. Truly God, truly man. He has the full nature of God, the full nature of man, in yeah. together in one person. Yeah, and there's a difference between two roles and two natures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can be a pastor and a father, mm-hmm. but I can't be a human and a dog. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> well, that's not a weird one. Okay, sci-fi. Yes. Yeah. So it sometimes when we talk about, um, I think when we talked about some of God's attributes, we talked about holiness in the sense that it's it's a purity, it's a sinlessness, but it's also a, a set apart from all things. And uh, just one reminder is that most of the times when we try to understand something, we describe it by comparing it to something else that's like it, right? It's like this. And so, oftentimes, a lot of these heretical views of the Trinity are, it's like water, how it's a vapor, and it's ice, and it's water. No, not really, right? So that's one, it's, we have a hard time describing sometimes the, the Trinity, because there's no other union like it. We can't say it's like this, or it's like that. So it's, it's kind of unique, in a sense. It's a singular that we don't have a comparison with. So we have to kind of just take its claims, examine each one without having a good analogy to say it's like this or it's, it's like that. I think with the two natures, it's also hard to understand because man and God don't seem to be like in unison. Like oftentimes you think of man that's like against God. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to think about one thing being two opposing things, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes it's hard for me to wrap my head around just because Man is in opposition to God in most cases. And so to understand that he was fully man, which seems to oppose himself, which he was also God. So, Yeah, so you're, it almost seems like since we're living in the cursed world as fallen humans, right, our view of man oftentimes is sinful. That's just part of being human. I think that we may talk about that briefly, but maybe there's a sense in which if we go back to, like, Pre-fall, if we look at, you know, Adam and Eve, sinless, gives us maybe a closer idea of how someone could be truly man, but not have, not be impacted by, by sin. Something in that paragraph that stood out to me that probably wouldn't stand out to most of you who were raised in some evangelical mm-hmm. context, but as mother of God, mm-hmm. I'm referring to Mary, and I may mm-hmm. be like a sidetrack, but it's dealing with the nature of Jesus in that statement, but what it actually means and how it's utilized more broadly in the world is pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. You like, what's the role of Mary? So in and Roman how Catholicism yeah. typically call Mary the mother of God as a, as a chief phrase for her. 
And in this statement, I believe, I'm not an expert on this statement specifically, but they're trying to highlight that she gave birth to Jesus who was divine. So they're trying to emphasize the deity of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, it's resulted in, in practical, real-world Roman Catholicism is, uh, is Mary is, is venerated or worshipped often higher than Jesus because she's his mom. Mm -hmm. And then in a matriarchal sort of society where the mom especially has a very high role, like in most Latin American countries, then they'll seek Mary before Jesus because if you want Jesus to do something for you, well, ask his mom. He has to do it. Yeah. It really is like that. Yeah. Uh, so, like to be a, a Mexican for most, for many Mexicans, is to be of the Guadalupe, and the Guadalupe is a manifestation of Mary. So it's it's deeply rooted in their identity and it takes precedence over Jesus functionally, which is why he's usually dead or a baby in most Catholic imagery. And Mary usually is the one holding the baby, and she's enthroned. She has a crown. Anyways, all to say that that idea of yeah. mother of God has been yeah. it's very big. It's shifted to focus on Mary versus shifting focusing on Jesus and His divinity. Right. Whereas, so would it be you think it'd be accurate to say that like the part? So it seems like when they're saying that here, originally begotten of the Father before all worlds, so exalting Him as God, but then born for us as man. It's trying to show how He descended to be a man, but when talks about Mary, the mother of God, that they're not necessarily bringing, focusing on Jesus being human, but more exalting her up yeah. into the divine. Well, I think the statement but is, I mean, that's is, an is trying to exalt Jesus, but yeah. what it's resulted in yeah. is an exaltation of Mary, which mm -hmm. should not have been at least the, the main right. point. Right. I think you mentioned something, too, that sometimes it's the, the way in which we understand the world around us often kind of puts us in a box in terms of what conclusions we're allowed to have and so some there's uh, sometimes when we read a statement like this there's this mindset that I have to understand something for that to be the true explanation and that's kind of you might see this a lot in kind of a scientific worldview that if you have an explanation that can't be understood and explained by natural simplistic causes that's not really an explanation it kind of defaults. It has to make sense in the world that I've already set up. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we can run into places where you get into a discussion and that's like, that's not an explanation. Why not? Because it doesn't fit my box of what an explanation can be like. And so we kind of have to take our place and say, well, where, what are we grounding ourselves in? in terms of, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's important that we have a a theology based off of revelation mm -hmm. where we're told what to believe from a source where he has all of this all worked out in his mind but that doesn't mean that the verification of whether or not it's true is whether or not it's worked out in our minds mm -hmm. yeah so there is some transcendence and and there is mystery but <clears throat> mystery that is given to us because of clear statements of revelation mm -hmm. right the difference being that uh, it's not a mystery because we haven't, uh, that it doesn't make sense or because we haven't sought it out. It's a mystery because there's certain things that have not been revealed to us. Like how they work together. Yeah. 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 So there's a place in which, and sometimes that's a challenge. Sometimes we can maybe stop a little bit short and say, oh, that's a mystery. When maybe there are things yeah. that we can learn from Scripture, right? We can study it. Sometimes I get, this is one of the area, key areas where the most difficult things, it's hard to sometimes, just, ah, I don't know, yeah. it works somehow. 
But like really digging in, okay, what do we know about Christ? What do we know about the Father? What does the scripture say? So that we can shape it as much as possible into that, that view that he's given us to know. Yeah, and I think a lot of heresy happens when people press it beyond what scripture clearly says. Right. They so want to, to say more than... They want to say more than what scripture says, mm-hmm. and they say something that's out of harmony with what scripture says, and mm-hmm. it's misleading. Yeah. It's almost a desire. I, I often, like, when I think about teaching, explain something, I want clarity. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, this is, this is how the scripture affirms this. And, this. and then you think, well, if I say this, it's really clear. But does scripture really <coughs> affirm that? Yeah. And to borrow on your math expertise, do we know the complete number of pi? Uh, no. <laughs> we, we know that it goes on infinitely. We can calculate as many as we want, but we'll never get all of them. Yeah, but you can still use the formula. I mean, we know enough yeah. right. for it to make geometry work. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think in the same way, I mean, we know enough revelation where we might know it exhaustively, but we know enough to know it truly and, and practically and helpfully. Yeah. So I thought one thing, yeah. I think that's a good apologetic for why we need to keep councils and creeds and catechisms in their place. Mm -hmm. And I'm someone, I've memorized them, I've talked to my children, we study them, Mm -hmm. but always saying things like, you know, Mary's the mother of God. Well, no, she's not the mother of the Godhead. Mm -hmm. In Mary, the man Christ Jesus was conceived Mm -hmm. and and brought to life, but Mm -hmm. he existed long before Mary. You know, she is not the mother of God. Yeah. In the sense that most of us would take that, even yeah. in our culture, I think, I yeah. think it's a misleading phrase. So, I mean, just always holding up all those other teachings. Mm-hmm. I think the, the younger we go, generationally, the more we want to hold on to creeds instead of scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they anchor us to history, and mm-hmm. but scripture anchors us to God. Yeah. And the thought of God. So it's just a that's just a warning. Yeah, and one of the things that's kind of it's somewhat different and and can be and be a strength and a weakness. Is that like in in our creeds and catechism, it, it kind of takes a topic and it really just says, this is the definitive statement on that topic. Yeah. yeah. Right. And scripture doesn't work that way, right? Everything is commented on and, and addressed in different ways from different parts. And I one of the key, you know, if the Bible written as this section about who Jesus is, this section about who the Father is. You change that section, right? You get that section wrong, then everything's right lost in a sense. Whereas the Bible, it is not written in that way where everything is kind of focused in on one point. Yeah. It all is self-informing. So just like when we study Scripture, and I, I this love you that when you look at those the, those creeds, oftentimes it's drilled down as kind of the essence, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have all the commentary around it that gives all the nuance of yeah. what do you mean by. The, yeah. the mother of God versus in scripture, you can always go, well, what this text, how does this text, how does this text? Yeah, and systematic theology is, is about disassembling the Bible, then reassembling it topically. Mm-hmm. And the way the Bible, what Revelation was given, it wasn't given that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did not give us an, a systematic theology when he gave us Revelation. He gave us stories. Mm-hmm. Um, teachings and all these other things mm-hmm. and so when we get frustrated that this project this project of reassembling the scriptures topically doesn't work out flawlessly that's because we're we're really kind of impo- imposing this construct mm-hmm. and you can't necessarily demand all the answers because that's not the way it was given yeah. mm-hmm. 
Or like, yeah. So it kind of helps us understand the structure of the Bible. Sometimes it goes along with like the, the purpose of the Bible, right? It wasn't yeah. just meant to be a textbook to answer all of our questions, yeah. right. but to reveal God mm-hmm. to us. And to lead us in Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those systematic theology, they, you know, when you read those, it, they're great resources. And the good ones often say, you know, they, they'll mention this is the problem, this is difficult, look at this scripture versus this scripture. And so they're bringing you to the scriptures that will, hopefully, if, you're, if you are interested in a topic and you are trying to understand that key text, they'll bring in the other text that address those as well. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, as I'm, not to dominate too much, but as I'm teaching through Luke, yeah. as I'm reading all these commentaries, they always have like this eyeball on Mark and Matthew and the differences between the two. But when Theophilus was reading Luke for the first time, it's not like he had Mark and Matthew right by him. Right. And he's saying, this seems to contradict, this seems to contradict, and this seems to contradict, and how do you rec- work out these differences? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just reading Luke. And yeah. so I think sometimes uh, we can be so focused on some of these problems and nuances that we miss the bigger picture of what's trying to be conveyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and like you, the bigger picture, uh, when we think about Christ and and the details. We don't want to get caught up in the details and miss the, the key yeah. message, right? Yeah. What what the Bible focuses on, what it majors on, that's very clear. And yes? Well, you have to refer to the scriptures in the Bible to come up with the true belief because I don't think the Bible has mentioned Mary being the mother of God I could be wrong, but um, because I'm not a yeah <laughs> yeah. I think in the, in the, the it mentions how Mary was the mother of Jesus, right? And then we know that but Jesus was God, God, and so it depends on how you want to put that together as to what you mean, even what you mean when you say. So yes, if you get in a discussion. And something revolves around a creed that says, well, Mary was the mother of God. Make sure we pause and say, what do you mean? Do you just mean that she was the mother of Jesus? I agree. She was the mother of Jesus. Um, So I think we would, let's um, maybe try and wrap up with talking a little bit about the impeccability of Christ. What's peccar? Is that right? Is that the word? To sin. To sin. So if Christ was peccable, that he could sin, he was impeccable. What's that mean? He couldn't sin. That was impeccable. Right? So let's look at some scriptures, and we'll talk about kind of just what, the, what that is often uh, discussed when we talk about the <coughs> impeccability. What do we mean by that? So Luke 4, we're on the list right here. Luke 4.13. Cole, you got that one? When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Okay, so the devil had tempted Jesus, John 8, 46. Joe? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Right, can anyone convict him of sin? John 8, 29, Keith? And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Leo, you got uh, John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. All right, he's kept the father's commandments. Let's see, Elijah, you ready? Second Corinthians five twenty one. 
Hand him a paper. He's got one. He made him who knew no sin to sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yeah, that's a that's right. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Uh, Hebrews four fifteen. Sam, got it. They're passing it down. <laughs> we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. All right, and then Carson, you want to get Hebrews seven twenty six? If we were fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy. Yeah. Okay. So in those verses, we can kind of glean out a couple things, right? A couple things that Jesus was tempted, right? We all agree Jesus was tempted, and Jesus never what? He never sinned. So that's something that there's 100% agreement upon. There aren't anybody. There's no one that. Uh, among theologians, among um, different denominations. Uh, then we look at Luke 4, 2. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. When they had ended, he became hungry. And, and 4, 15 we just read, right? And then we have James 1, 13. Let's flip there for a second. Let's flip to James 1. So in James, uh, he's talking about trials. Remember, count it all joy, my brothers. When you, meet, when you meet trials of various kinds, and it produces this steadfastness. Talks about those who have, lack wisdom asking in faith that they might receive that wisdom. In 9 and 10 and 11, talks about the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, that they will how they might endure these trials, right? The loss of um, their riches. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial when he has stood the test. Okay, and then we get to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay? So God cannot be tempted by evil, so that's a verse that kind of informs, right, and it kind of makes it, a, why, why is that maybe great a little bit against what we were just talking about with Jesus? Mm -hmm. Creating the issues there. Well, Jesus was God and he was tempted. Jesus was God and Jesus was tempted, right? Very evil. It's very specific in how he was tempted. What's that? I said it's very specific how he was tempted. <laughs> and this verse says he was not tempted by evil, but Satan is evil, so it's Ah. Yeah, verse 14 there says, but each person is tempted when he's allured and enticed by his own desire. So was Jesus lured and enticed by his evil desire? No. So it, that's kind of the issue is like, what does it mean that Jesus really was tempted? If we know that he didn't have evil desire, he didn't have this um, desire for uh, to want to do evil that, that we have. So this is as far as the scriptural specific affirmations of scripture take us. We know that he was human. We know that he was a man. We know that he never sinned. Um, how that works exactly. So impeccability is that although the temptation was real, we do believe that he never sinned. And 
I think we had the, someone asking, well, could he have sinned? Chris is saying no. Why not, Chris? Because he's fully God and God is holy. Yeah. God cannot cannot be tempted by sin. evil. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, it's it's not it's easy. Like, yeah, go it's ahead. Like he, he couldn't sin, but why didn't he? But, but he what? He couldn't sin because he's fully God, but why didn't he? Like the, like the human because mm-hmm. he's also fully Jesus is also fully man so why didn't he it was he, he could just he couldn't sin obviously because he was fully God as well but I'm having a hard time explaining yeah <laughs> you're in good company right? <laughs> I think too there's a sense in which when we think about why we sin it kind of brings out a little bit of um, like I was talking to my son about um, something particular and how um, we were doing internet filters and doing this and that and just to re- kind of remind him that it's there's a lot of temptation that comes from outside but you also have to remember that mm-hmm. you have temptation that comes from the inside and so just doing all of this on the outside isn't enough to for you to write be to walk in holiness to walk in obedience it's there's a ch- change that has to be happening in your heart and so there's that sense in which we recognize that for us as fallen men, we have temptation coming from the outside, and also we have that lure and that draw from within. And so with Jesus, he was facing the onslaught of that draw from the outside, that temptation from the devil and the world, but there was not that sinful, wicked, evil desire coming from within. And so those temptations, yes, they were real, but as him being God, would he or could he have sinned? No. Because he was fully, truly, truly God in that sense. So, um, there's, a, there's a note here at the end that has one way that Lewis tempts, attempts to explain that is just to say that, you know, just because he didn't succumb to that temptation doesn't mean he didn't know it and experience what it felt like and couldn't sympathize with us. He says, no man knows how bad he is at least tried hard, very hard to be good. Right? So those, when we're just following after our sin, we, it doesn't really seem like we're really being tempted. It's just like, this is what I want to do. And I'm doing what I want to do. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That's a lie because only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. <coughs> after all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. And a man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it has been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They lived in a sheltered way or sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what that temptation is really is. <coughs> so so do you think he, he fought it then? Do you think he fought the temptation? Or was he like more so bulletproof? So when I think about that, like think about the, the desert is where I'm in one of the main contexts. I think he, as a, I mean, he was truly hungry, right? He experienced in his humanity what hunger felt like and it's 
who would have a strong desire, a strong appetite to have food. And so he, it was his mind, he's, you've got this one person, but he has a body, he has a mind, he has his, his soul. And, um, and so it's kind of depends on what you mean by fighting the temptation. He experienced the force of those external um, opportunities to do something that would appease that physical desire, that physical need for food. For, um, but I don't think he had an inner turmoil as to what should I do here. I think he knew all the time, no, I'm not going to turn these stones into bread in a sense. And it, I think that there's a place in which, in a very, very small degree, I don't know if I would if even compare them, but there's a sense in which when you're, when you might be going, being sanctified and you're not really sure if you're going to be obedient or not in a particular sin that you're trying to turn away from. I think that through time and practice and disciplines, there can be a time where you, in a sense, you're very confident that you, I'm not going to do this. But you also know that there's a force of temptation that you stay away from this particular setting or you know that if this conversation comes up, it's going to be a temptation. And you've settled in your heart and you've done it time after time and you've walked obediently, but it's still a temptation to get angry, for example, when someone does this, even if you've experienced obedience in a sense. And I think in, in a way we can kind of see modeled that we, you know, we depend upon God's presence. We depend on the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to do that. And so although we're human, we depend upon the divine uh, to help us in that, to help us in our temptations. How are we doing? Are we right there? Okay. Next week. So we've done God the Father. I'll give you a guess. We've done the God the Father, God the Son. It's a mystery. What do you think we're going <laughs> to... The work of Jesus Christ. Oh, okay. Okay. Led you straight. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, I just thank you for um, your Holy Spirit and for your word. It is such a deep word, and I pray that although you have not revealed all to us, I know that you have so much more in your word that we have yet to explore. So I pray that as we learn and grow, we continue to come to your word, seeking out new things, new insights, that it would be the treasure that we have found and sold everything to find you. And that as we look to know you better, that we use the means of your Holy Spirit opening up your word to us. Pray that as we continue to study and we go closer into you, be made more into your image, and that as we worship you this morning, we would exalt you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.